Hi, I'm Marilyn Barefoot, and this is Breaking Brave. Today, I am chatting with Dr. Daniel Kalla. Dr. Kalla is the head of emergency at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, who's also a best-selling author of thriller fiction novels. The latest book, Lost Immunity, One Vaccine, One Hope, What Could Go Wrong. I could not personally put it down. I got the advanced reader copy and it's brilliant. Talk about an overachiever. Oh my goodness. He is brave and he is fascinating. Welcome, Dr. Kala. I am thrilled beyond thrilled, and thank you for taking the time away from your very exceptionally busy life of saving lives to chat with me today. Welcome to Breaking Brave. Uh, It's good to be here, Marilyn, and that is a gross exaggeration, but uh, I'll take it, I guess. When researching you a little bit, uh, Dr. Kalla, I found a term that I hadn't heard before, which is dual careerist. Meaning, on the one hand, you're an incredibly successful ER doctor at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, correct? Yes. And on the other hand, you're writing these brilliant novels, number 12 of which I have just finished, entitled Lost Immunity. The yin and the yang of your life, just incredible. Just incredible. I'm so inspired. Thank you. What you didn't say is that I also have a a touch of ADHD and having these two careers uh, is a nice form of therapy for me. They balance each other out very well. So what I understand, Dr. Kelly, is that you come from a long lineage of doctors, your grandfather, your father, and your wife, Cheryl, who is a pediatrician. Um, there's just medicine all around you in your life. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, you, you know, maybe the biggest influence is my mother, who is, you know, a relatively groundbreaking family doctor, you know, because she got trained in England in the in the 50s and early 60s and, and came to Vancouver. She was one of the few females in her medical I school class. I am so sorry. I missed your mom. So when I said all around you, I was going grandfather, father, but of course your mom too. You're not even scratching the surface. If you go to one of my family reunions, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a doctor. <laughs> like it is, it is genetically in my blood, right? And it, and it was almost an expectation growing up that I would end in medicine, end up in medicine. I sort of, you know, always had that goal in the back of my mind, but that expectation in the back of my mind too. So I, I really do feel I was kind of born into my profession in that sense. And your your uh, grandfather fled Czechoslovakia just a few weeks before the Nazis descended. Am I correct with that? He was a doctor in in Prague. Yeah, well, he was in a smaller town, but uh, you're absolutely right. It was actually the day the Nazis uh, walked into Czechoslovakia, and it was actually my grandmother. I mean, I come from a very powerfully and wonderfully maternal family, and my grandmother recognized my grandfather would have never saw the writing on the wall, so she tricked him to going to England for a non-existent medical fellowship a couple months before, and then she got my my mom, who was a, you know, a a three-year-old and her baby sister all out on the very last commercial flight of the Czechoslovakia as the, the Nazis were rolling in. And uh, for sure they would have all died if it wasn't for my mom, grandmother's foresight. That is incredibly brave. Wow. T- 
tricked him. Isn't that amazing? Strong women in your family there, Dr. Kala. Very much so. Wow. And so you went to medical school. Of course you did, because you <laughs> you can't go to a family reunion without having the name DR in front of your name. I, I, if I ever decide to crash one of your family reunions, <laughs> I at least know what to put on my name tag. Um, you went to UBC, studied math, and then went into medicine. Correct. Fantastic. And you're still working with UBC, I understand. Yeah, I'm a clinical associate professor because I work at the teaching hospital. Uh, and so we teach, you know, UBC students and residents all the time. It's part of the joy of working in a teaching hospital. We always get to work with learners and uh, it really keeps the job fresh and interesting to see it through, you know, those enthusiastic, uh, somewhat innocent uh, eyes of the new and about to be grads. Uh, it's it, it, it makes it a lot easier not to become jaded in our profession, you know. Absolutely. Let's talk about Lost Immunity, your latest incredible book. I was privileged enough to receive an advanced, uncorrected uh, proof copy of the book, and I could not put it down, subtitled, One Vaccine, One Hope, What Could Go Wrong? It is chilling. It is amazing. It is a page turner. And I understand it's coming out on your birthday, May the 4th. <laughs> That's right. What was the impetus? What was the creative impetus for this? I mean, it is so timely right now with respect to vaccines. How long ago did you have the vision of writing a book about immunization, vaccines, etc.? Because you were way out ahead yet again of a curve that we, none of us, the regular world, didn't anticipate? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting question. With I have this wonderful publisher now, Simon & Schuster, that I've been working my last, well, four books. Well, the fourth book will come out next year and, and, and more to follow because I just signed a new contract with them. But um, I work, especially with the, the Toronto group, very closely, um, my editor and, you know, Laurie Grassi and the publisher, Kevin Hansen, and, and all of them. And, and we have sort of talked about new books every time I finish a previous book. I've put out a book a year now. for the, This will be the fourth year in a row or third year in a row, next year will be the fourth year. But, you know, we were talking about two years ago about, you know, they, they pointed out that medicine is, is my gimmick in my books. To, I am bring people behind the curtain, as it were, to give them a peek of the behind-the-scene view. And we were talking about what hot-button issue is, is important and controversial. And I said, I don't think there's a more controversial in, issue than vaccination. And this was a year before we'd heard of COVID, right? right? And in fact, I finished this manuscript, the first draft, on the day or at least the week that I heard about a new virus coming out of Wuhan, China, that was about to become COVID. So, I mean, vaccination was a huge issue before COVID, but it's, you know, 10 times more relevant of an issue now. And, and fortunately, I was able to, uh, in the rewrites, include COVID in the story and, and reference it. It's not the main villain as, as, for, as far as infections go, but it, it does set the precedent but all the principles that we talk about, you know, herd immunity and vaccine effects and vaccine hesitancy and all the hot button important themes that are discussed in this novel that I try to educate people a little bit about are totally pertinent and relevant to the COVID vaccine, especially so. Yeah, it, I, I, was, I was dreaming about it 
as I was reading it, which I always feel is like the best test of an incredible book because you 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 feel your eyes going a little bit at a certain point in the evening and you finally put it down and then shut the light off and go to bed. But I'm I'm literally dreaming about it. It 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 feels a little bit like a cross between reality and fiction because you're referencing COVID in the book, which is just here and now, which you don't usually like your your timing is just amazing. So Dr. Kelly, can you just give us a little um, overview of of the book, a little taster, because I've had the pleasure of reading it, but maybe some of the folks when they listen to this won't. So I would love to you to tell them what it's about. Sure. So in the story, a, a dreaded new strain of meningitis sweeps through the city of Seattle, and it, it targets older children, you know, teens and, and youths, killing some within hours. And there's this new unproven vaccine that might be the city's only hope to stop this very deadly epidemic. And implementing the citywide vaccination campaign falls to the the chief public health officer, whose name is Dr. Lisa Dyer. And she comes from her own family, is anti-vax, which leads to a lot of tension, as you know. But after, so they start rolling out the vaccine, and at first it's successful, but after a few recipients start to die, it becomes clear that maybe someone has their thumb on the scale, um, and as the as the meningitis epidemic is soaring, the trust in the vaccine among the community is plummeting, and time's really not on Lisa's side to sort this out. And you know, the question is, will she uncover the Trojan horse conspiracy that's behind these side effects before it's too late? And uh, you know, I, and I mean, as you said, because I, I don't know of, an, of, a, of a medical advance uh, that's ever engendered such kind of myth hysteria and passion mm-hmm. is vaccination and you know mm-hmm. emotions so often supplants reason when we talk about this and so i took it a, le- a step further and said could this divide between the pro and vax uh, uh and pro and anti-vax camp actually lead to murder so and that was the kind of premise of my, <laughs> my novel exactly could you tell us and and thank you it's brilliant because i didn't i couldn't figure it out i i I just couldn't figure it out. And I like to think of myself as sort of an expert on these things, because if I'm watching something on Netflix where I'm reading a book, I'm like, okay, it's the so-and-so did it in the library with the, you know, the hammer (laughs) or whatever. But in your book, no, I couldn't figure it out. So why do you believe, Dr. Kalla, that the whole subject matter of vaccines, vaccination is so incredibly controversial? And I guess it's a worldwide thing. It's not just a Canadian thing. No, for sure. It's it's worldwide. You know, interestingly, as I started researching the history of the vaccine hesitancy, as they like to call the broad umbrella that includes yes. everyone from the fiercest anti-vaxxers to the kind of people who just are worried about a vaccine, but will get some. Um, it's been around forever. Since the, the smallpox first vaccine was discovered 200 years ago, there were anti-vaxxers. Is that right? I didn't know that. I had no idea that it goes that far back goes back hundreds of years, but it was more of a fringe movement until, unfortunately, there's a moment in history where it exploded. And that's in the late 1990s when when a doctor in Britain named Wakefield published a fraudulent study about uh, autism, associating autism with, with uh, the measles vaccine. And it was a terrible study. In fact, it was a dishonest study. And, you know, and it should have never been accepted, but it was published in a big journal, The Lancet at the time, which has since retracted and apologized for publishing it. But it left such an indelible effect on on people. And autism has been rising over the last 40, 50 years. People wanted something to blame it on. They clung on to this. And then at the same time, social media, the Internet, these 
online echo chambers sprung up. And it's yeah. just fed this. It is truly the ultimate conspiracy theory. theory. You know, I, mm. I, and I say that, as you know, in the book, I try to tr- treat the anti-vax side fair. And, and there, there yeah. are decent, intelligent, well-meaning people on that side. But they're simply wrong. The science just doesn't support what they say and what they believe. But for them, it's more like a religion now. It's not a, a rational belief anymore. Yeah. It's not. And, you know, and and. There's no real science behind it. It's just this anecdotal evidence. It's like, you know, I tell people it's the the equivalent of saying I got a, you know, I got a tetanus shot yesterday. I got hit by a truck the next day. It's not because of the tetanus shot. It's just timing that certain things happen in populations, you know. There's a difference between association and cause. And that's one of the themes that I try to establish in this book. Thank you so much for that, because I didn't realize that there was actually a fraudulent study the Lancet, it's the thing. So if it goes in there, it's got to be true, I guess, is what most of the world would believe. And yeah, you actually deal with autism in your book. So now I understand, you know, the relationship along those lines. But thank you for that explanation. But I think, Marilyn, Um, it's so important to point out that there have been huge, properly done population studies since that study that have completely debunked that finding. There is a zero association between autism and the measles vaccine, um, you know, like none. And it's, it's, just, it's just so unfortunate that that, that, that that belief has stuck and fostered so many other myths about vaccines. Okay, so I absolutely agree. I mean, look at polio. I had a friend whose dad had polio when he was like eight years old and has written a book, not a fiction book like yours, not a fictional book like yours, but about how it felt to wake up at eight or nine years of age and not feel his legs anymore. And, and, and that vaccination program. So is there something if, if we have folks that are listening to this and they are, you know, hesitant about getting the COVID-19 vaccine, what um, what would you say to those folks? Because I think this is a great opportunity to certainly say something to them, perhaps. Yeah, I think that, and, and I, you know, thank you for pointing that out, because I think that's so important. There are the fiercest, most kind of um, zealot-like followers mm. of the anti-vax movement, and I don't think anything I say could ever reach them, but there are people who are on the fence, and, and those are so important. And here's the thing about vaccines. Vaccines' primary role is to protect society at large. They're the most vulnerable among us, you know. And I like the analogy that that a vaccine for an individual is like uh, in a rainstorm is like giving a person a raincoat. But mm. but giving a community a vaccine and creating herd immunity is like giving a whole community a tent or an umbrella over them to protect them from the rain. Uh, And that's the main goal of a vaccination campaign is to reach that point where that tent is waterproof, which is about the 70% mark to get herd immunity. And that's when you protect the people who are allergic to vaccines, the people who are too frail or vaccines don't work because they have depressed immune system. You protect the whole Mm -hmm. society. So being opposed to vaccine and not participating or not getting your family, you're doing society. You're not just exposing yourself. You're exposing everybody who's most vulnerable in the community. And that's why it's so vital that each person does their part and get vaccinated. It's, it's, it's just part of being a, a contributing member to society, you know? Yeah, 
and and I like I love the visual because I you know it's like one individual in a little red like Paddington bear and a little raincoat, mm-hmm. but then an entire tent over the entire community, and we all have to do our part. I understand. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I hope that that if there are fence sitters, shall we call them that 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 is uh, a visual that they'll carry with them and that that's an obligation. I fall in that sweet spot of old enough to get AstraZeneca. And there were three markets in Ontario. I don't live in Toronto. I, I live in east, east of Toronto and closer to Kingston. So we booked a an appointment online and drove to Kingston and super easy and super wonderful. Yeah. And you know, and AstraZeneca is the controversial vaccine because yeah. it's associated with this exceptionally rare side effect. But people have to understand four in a million, uh, you know, Tylenol has more dangerous side like it's it still makes it one of the safest medications in the world that is statistically insignificant one in 250,000 and also your risk of getting a clot which is the side effect that that AstraZeneca has been associated with is 10 times higher if you get COVID like getting AstraZeneca actually protects you against getting a clot relative to the people who aren't vaccinated and so, but it but it's these kind of rare side effects that people often use to justify, you know, yeah. not getting vaccinated, but it makes no sense. And it's the other side of the story that I wish we could hear more of, because, you know, maybe that's media, maybe this is how it spins. I, I don't know, because that's not an, an area that I work in, but blood clots, blood clots is what they're talking about. But then when you say the other side of the story, Dr. Callow, when you're like, well, your your chances of getting a blood clot if you get COVID, are X percent more. It's like these are the pieces that just somehow don't make it to the surface for people who are just watching general news. Yeah, and whether there's statistic for you, Marilyn, that I think is even more practical, you have a one in 7,000 chance of getting in a blood clot every time you get on a flight that's more than four or five hours. Um, But nobody doesn't get on a flight because there's a tiny risk of a blood clot. Um, you know, so it's something like, you know, 30 times as likely to get a blood clot from a flight as from an AstraZeneca vaccine. And, you know, and 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 then you look at the, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which have been given to hundreds and hundreds of millions of people with effectively no serious side effects. It's staggering. There's not another medication around that performs with so few adverse effects, practically. And I thank you for that analogy, because I didn't know that about getting on an airplane. Just as a regular person taking a plane when we could, when it was safe, I think that's the voice of reason that really needs to be heard in the world. We need you to be a spokesperson. (laughs) When you're not writing and you're not practicing ER medicine, (laughs) you need to be a spokesperson. But it, but it gets back to your original point. I, I wrote this novel with intention, right? This is the themes behind it. Is a, it's a story, and I want to entertain, and I want it to be suspenseful. But I really want to get this fundamentally important point across. And never in our history has the issue of vaccinations been more important, and you know, and the issue of the vaccine hesitancy been more dangerous to society. So. It really is. Uh, I do feel, I know I feel like I'm getting on a soapbox at times, but it's just so important for me to get that message across. Well, and I think you've done so in this book absolutely artfully. Um, And I have, I'll say this and then we'll maybe move on to a couple of stories. Um, Such respect that it's in the here and now. I know I've already mentioned this, but there are a couple of little 
programs that we watch sometimes, movies or shows on Netflix, where now the cast in the actual movie is wearing a mask. And it's like, okay, well, that's topical because this is the world we're living in right now. So your book, I wish you every success because this is going to be huge. Um, And it's a brilliantly written book. But the fact that it's so sticky on such such an important topic is just fabulous. Thank you. You're welcome. So I can't even imagine what you see as an ER doctor. Are there some stories specifically around, let's say, COVID that you've seen coming through your ER experience that that have stuck with you that mm-hmm. maybe you could relate to us? Obviously, no names, no, no, this is all anonymous. But I just thought that power of storytelling in this situation, as you bravely are a frontline worker and, and medical doctor, would be important, I think, for people to hear. Sure. The first one, probably the most impactful, and it's not a particularly positive story, but just meant so much to me um, and, and I thought about it for weeks and months after, was back in uh, the late uh, late summer, early fall, I was working an ER shift, <clears throat> a day shift, and we had a, a gentleman who was in his mid-60s come in with quite severe COVID, and he wasn't holding his oxygenation saturation no matter what we did, and it became clear we were going to have to put him on, his ventilator, on a ventilator. And the funny thing about COVID is that Unlike other forms of pneumonia, like bacterial pneumonia, which often make people unconscious when they get septic, when they get so sick, people are often wide awake, but their lungs are just waterlogged. I, I call it drowning on land, right? They just mm. they just can't breathe, but their, their blood pressure is fine and their brain is working and they're perfectly aware. And this per- person was terrified and his wife couldn't come in because, you know, we couldn't risk having. So he was mm-hmm. all alone. And we had to put him on a ventilator and, you know, and he was terrified until we sedated him and put him on the ventilator. And it was an, you know, he did a little bit better on the ventilator, you know, and then he went up to ICU. And But it was a bit un, unsatisfying because he was so scared through the process. But I finished my shift an hour or two later and I walked out the front door of my downtown hospital and there was this anti-mask protest passing by the front mm-hmm. screaming. And, 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 and as I was standing on the corner waiting to cross, one of the protesters turned and looked at me and saw I was in scrubs mm-hmm. and screamed at me that COVID is a hoax as he marched on. And, you know, I, you know, I didn't say anything, but I desperately wanted to take him to come visit this poor, terrified man who might well die alone of this horrific disease that he just called a hoax, you know. And it just struck me, this: where does this insane belief system, you know, who equates, you know, public health with politics and infections with, you know, uh, belief systems? It's it just it made no sense to me. So that was the first story that stuck with me. The second is that I found out about a colleague of mine. <clears throat> I won't say what exactly what profession he or she was in, but a very learned mm-hmm. colleague who worked mm-hmm. in the department with me, who's always been vac- been hesitant uh, herself, uh, refused to get the vaccine. Um, on grounds she was worried about it and then ended up uh, about a month later in hospital extremely sick from covid because you know presumably because she refused to get the vaccine and you know and did finally uh, get home but is really struggling still with the long-term effects of covid and and i think it would have been avoidable if if she had just believed more in, in the vaccine so you know those those to me are two powerful anecdotes very much so I picture it. I mean, it's it's the way our brains process. And I've always said, 
you know, these are the stories that the world needs to hear, um, was the terrified 60-year-old man okay? Did he make it? Uh, in the end, he, he, he did make it out of hospital, but we certainly, Good. at the time, it was very touch and go. <laughs> I can imagine. Seeing it firsthand and then being hit, like immediately walking out the door of the hospital. I think that was the angriest I've ever been about, about you know, because we've gotten so much public, you know, and like your introduction, people shower us with praise and, you know, and, and make us seem like uh, heroes um, when I don't think we are. We're just, you know, committed to our jobs and, you know, people have been so um, supportive. But, but that was one moment where I just felt so angry after all the work my colleagues and I and everybody does. Um, you know, to have these ignorant um, people sort of disrespect and, and, and discount the truth like that, it really, it really upset me. Absolutely. I'm just going to go back to something you said about your learned colleague who is still struggling with the long haulers in the world that um, we hear about and that, yes, you're out of the hospital, but then their lives seem to be changed dramatically. Their health seems to be changed dramatically. Could you address that a, a little bit, Dr. Callan, in terms of what your experience with that has been? Well, mine is very limited as an emergency I doctor. Guess, yeah. I see people on the front. But the, but the truth is that it's an entirely evolving field. I mean, this is a, a disease that has only been around 15, 16 months. We have no idea what the effect five years if you'd survive mm -hmm. COVID, we don't even know if somebody who is asymptomatic, if 10 years from now, they won't have an unexpected complication. We just don't know. And it's, yeah. and I do know, I know a few people who have a long haul syndrome. It's so frustrating, the fatigue, you know, that they, they don't understand and, and nobody can tell them, it, will, will it get better? Will it not? Like it's, it's we're going to have, a, you know, COVID is going to leave us with two things. One is going to leave us with, with, once we're over this pandemic, which I'm hopeful we will be once the <clears throat> herd immunity is established, but we're going to have people with chronic disease and we're going to have people with chronic PTSD after this. I think we're going to have a, a mental health tsunami of, of all the economic and health and other suffering that's gone on in the last year. I, I don't think people feel in the, in the midst of a crisis. I don't think people experience PTSD. I don't think I think it's afterwards when it's over and we're relatively safe that, that the, the, the damage really sinks in. So I'm, I'm truly concerned what that might be like in another few years. Absolutely. Um, it's like, I mean, to me, it feels like you're in a car accident. And when you're in a car accident, you're doing all the right things. Your adrenaline kicks in yeah. and, and, and you're reacting and, you're, and you're, your survival instinct, if you will, is there. But then when it's over... And you know you're safe and you're standing back and people are dealing with your car, et cetera, et cetera. There's this complete collapse which happens. And, and I imagine that's exactly what you're referencing. Yeah. How are we doing in Canada with all this, do you think? I mean, all this. I mean, I guess what I'm saying <laughs> is vaccination rollout, maybe, I guess. And I, I'm not trying to be political because, oh, my God, that's not where we're going. But yeah, yeah. simply just it, from your medical perspective, what what do you think? I'm not running for office, so I can be political for a second. <laughs> I, th I think for the first year or so, we did a very good job. I mean, compared to our neighbors, I think, you know, I obviously could have done a better job. Um, but to control the rate that it was to, you know, Ontario and Quebec have all we struggled more than the other provinces, but they're much more populous. So it makes sense. So 
But I think on the whole, Canada did well and responded and our hospitals responded well. I think our ICUs have been heroic and magnificent in how they've handled the problem. But I do think whether it's somebody's fault or just the fact that we didn't produce vaccines ourselves, the fact that we're lagging behind and we're not in the top 20 countries of vaccination rate, we're paying the price for now in this third wave. You know, countries that have high vaccination rates are starting to see their COVID rates plummet and we're not there yeah. yet. And, yeah. I, and I'm hoping in the next two months that 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 situation is going to change. But but unfortunately, we're still in the most vulnerable part and we're starting to see young people get very sick with this disease. And it's very scary. I personally have a couple of friends in hospital with COVID and there's no question we're seeing a change in the pattern of who's sick with this virus right now. So. And I have kids um, in that, there are one that's 27 and one that's 29. And I, I feel for them because, you know, I have no idea what it's like to be socially isolated yeah. in this situation. But they're, they're taking risks that they shouldn't be taking. Yeah. And, you know, old mothers saying, no, that's a dangerous thing to do. You shouldn't do that. I mean, yeah, they've always got a mask on, etc. But they're... They're taking risks because I think it's that that delicate balance between sure. the mental health piece and and the COVID safe piece. Yeah, and I get that, but th- but there's but there's relative risks. You know, we had a couple. You know, we had some beautiful weather in Vancouver on the weekend, and we had beach parties of thousands of kids oh, singing no, and really? dancing. And it's terrible. It's such. It's outside, but there's singing and hugging and in close yeah. quarters and the, the risk is just so high and what's so frustrating is we really are just a couple months away from you know a much broader rollout of the vaccine from inevitably dropping covid rates but 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 we are you know and i think in many areas in canada at some of the highest risk right now our hospitals are fuller than they've ever been and that's the breaking point with COVID. And so now is the time to buckle down. And it's okay to go out yeah. with four friends to the beach, but not okay to go out with 4,000 friends yeah. to the beach, you know? Absolutely. And how are you faring in British Columbia or in Vancouver regarding your your ICU levels and having to transfer patients? I mean, we're now in Ontario in a place where the ICUs are getting full to overflowing to the point where patients are having that are non-COVID patients are having to be transferred into other hospitals. Yeah. No, I heard the story of in Toronto, isn't it the children's hospital taking young adult ICU patients, yeah. which has yeah, never happened in the history of yeah. just because of, there's just no capacity. We're not quite there in Vancouver. We're at record ICU levels and record hospital levels. But fortunately in the last week, our numbers have started to drop a little bit with some new restrictive measures. So hopefully We'll, we won't exceed the ICU capacity, but um, it's scary because, you know, as soon as that happens, the system decompensates and death rates start to spiral because people just don't get as good care. Not just the COVID patients, but the heart attack patients, everybody, the surgical everybody. patients, everybody. People don't understand that there's this very delicate balance with the hospital system that if you tip it into the beyond capacity, um, everybody pays for that. Again, there's another side of the story that I was completely unaware of until you point that out. They tell us, you know, we have to move people into different hospitals, but the net effect of that, we're not hearing that part of the story. Let me jump, Dr. Kalev, from the the medical side of you to the other part of your dual career, which is more the writer part of you. 
I understand that you've had a bit of a fascination since you were in elementary school, shall we say, with pandemic, Black Death, the plague, etc., which I think is great. I mean, on my side, full full admission, I have a complete obsession with prisons. <laughs> so <laughs> can you um, maybe talk about how you got into writing? There's a story about a postcard when you were in grade 10. <laughs> and, and then maybe a little bit about what's your process? You're so busy as, as a doctor. When and how do you come up with these fabulous ideas for your novels? Thanks. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, ever since I was young, as I said, I was kind of born into medicine, but writing, you know, even grade one, grade two, and we'd create those little storybooks. I just love to tell a story. And I, and I think that's where I excel. I don't necessarily think I'm a great writer, but I do think I'm a good storyteller. And, you know, and, and I love to, to be able to create a, a new world and a new setting. I don't tend to work with one set of characters. I don't, I've written a couple sequels, but for the most part, I write standalone new novels, um, partly because I forget details about characters. And <laughs> Who was that guy? That. I don't want to go back and read that book again. Was that guy gay or was he dead? I don't remember. But um, but uh, no, but I mean, it, for me, it's this opportunity to create a, a whole new tableau, like a whole new mm. world every time. And, and, and I love that. And so, you know, it, I, and I work sort of half time clinically now. So I do have a lot of time to pursue other things and the writing. For me, that it's just coming up with that original idea and, and, you know, usually it's about a theme first and then to set a story to it. And then once that takes off uh, and really takes hold and I can sort of obsess over it, you know, that's, that's for me when, when uh, the adrenaline kicks in and, and, and it just becomes such a labor of love. Once I've written the first couple chapters of a story and I begin to feel the characters, like I, I know them a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, and then you get to, for me, I get to the kind of, so I work from very brief outlines that aren't detailed. They're often just mm. a couple pages. And I don't refer to them again much once I start the story. For me, it's much more organic. Once the story starts, I, I just kind of work from chapter to chapter and, and keep notes on, on, on where I'm trying to go. But it's, it's such a predictable process now for me, 12 books in, that the first couple chapters will be you know, struggles to eke out and to, you know, I'll have to really work on them, but I'll hit this kind of tipping point. And at times, sort of by the last third of the novel, I literally can't type fast enough, you know, once I know exactly where it's going. And yeah. that's the joy. Like, you know, I, I get more more satisfaction now from completing a first draft of a novel than I did in my first couple of books. Like, because every time I finish, I go, well, that's good, but that's the last time I ever pull this off. <laughs> and then the next <laughs> one comes along and it's just like, you know, it's just, it's an overwhelmingly satisfying feeling to get to the end of a, of a story and pull it together as best I can. And, uh, you know, and, and just feel like a, it's a job completed. I mean, and of course, there's other drafts and edits and I rely on so many, you know, I have terrific editors, both in-house and my friends who help me, but, but it's just, um, but, it, it, you know, as I said, by 12 books in, I, I kind of can predict how the process is going to go from first kernel of idea to finishing that last sentence. But I can just tell, because um, we're doing this not only just audio, but also visually, that it light your passion. I can just see it in your eyes as, it, as you're telling me about the process. It is such a passion. Just amazing. I wondered about the subject of bravery and I'm going to loop back a little bit because we're breaking brave here but your grandmother tricking your grandfather to go to England and then her and kids getting on a, uh, the last one of the last trains out um, 
you come from a long line of brave people, mm. Dr. Kella. Yeah, I, I really, I mean, there's stories of bravery in my family that are unbelievable, but it was, it was bravery by necessity rather than, you know, bravery by choice. This was about survival um, mm. because my, you know, I, I come from a Jewish background. So many uh, of the family, you know, escaped somehow from Europe during the Holocaust. Um, and, you know, the stories were just, you know, my dad's another incredible story. He survived in Budapest as a young teenager um, you know, and saw the Hungarian Arrow Cross Party, which was even more arguably vicious than the Nazi party. And then the Nazis, when they did come into Budapest, and, you know, he tells one story of, he used to tell, he didn't talk much about the war and he's passed now, mm. but um, the one story he told me that stuck with me my whole life was how he and his cousins were rounded up by these thugs in the Arrow Cross and they marched them towards the Danube River out of the city. And what they do is they just line them up on the banks of the river and just machine gun them into the river. And, uh, but, but people didn't know that necessarily at the time, but my dad knew something terrible was up and he and his yeah. cousin were second cousin were walking along and there were only guards spaced way out. My dad said, this is ridiculous. We won't come home if we stick with him. And the cousin said, no, 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 don't, we can't cross these guards. You've got to obey what they're telling yeah. you. And my dad just waited till it got to dusk and he just slipped out into the forest and just made his way back to Budapest. And nobody on that march was ever seen again. And and your and your dad's cousin was with him, or no, no, the cousin didn't come with him and and died and uh, or was murdered. But um, you know, but it just just kind of incidental acts of of survival, and I guess you know, and for sure bravery um, that were an everyday part of his teenage life. It's so you know, I grew up as privileged kind of son of two doctors and couldn't have had an easier teenagehood. And when I think back to what what my uh, my dad and, and some of my family members went through, it's, it's, it's humbling. Wow, thank you for sharing that story. Wow. Are there things in life that scare you, Dr. Kala? <laughs> that you're willing to talk about? No, <laughs> there's so many things in life that scare me. I mean, they're not plane crash or random events. That doesn't scare me. Uh, you know, but unfortunately in medicine, we get this, you know, in emergency eye work, we get this... Um, unsolicited uh, view at some of the worst diseases and, and worst outcomes that can happen to people. And, you know, and, 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 and it's a privilege being a doctor, but also sometimes it's a curse knowing too much about some of yeah. the disease processes that, that do things to people and particularly the neurologic degenerative diseases, you know, everything from dementia to ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease and stuff that, you know, where you see people lose their body or lose their mind or, you know, those are those those illnesses in particular terrify me. I can see that. I could see why. So, so how do you cope with that? Because you've got to get up every day and go to those front lines and and see that kind of stuff. Um, and you're afraid of it. And 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 so, how do you cope with it? Is I'm not. It, I'm you know. I'm not brave in that situation, but. But the bravery I see, you know, I've seen a couple of people with, with you know, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, who know what's coming for them, who know who are yeah. relatively, who's still at a point where they can talk or they can. And I've mm -hmm. seen such courage and such, you know, spirit and, and you know, and still optimism and belief, even though they know there is no real hope for the long term for what they have. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it, it's inspiring when you see somebody yeah. like that, when you see patients with advanced cancer who aren't complaining, who thank you for whatever care that you give them, who, you know, it gives you a, a true appreciation for, you know, 
human resilience and 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 human decency when you see people like that and so i really that even you know i've been doing this job 26 27 years it still makes a huge impact when i see somebody like that because you you see some ungrateful people and some very demanding people in the emergency department and uh you know and you balance that off with these other people who are so kind and so stoic and and you know and have very minimal expectations of you i um i had that same experience and this is not about me but i'm a breast cancer survivor and mm. so i didn't have to have chemo but i did have to have radiation yeah. and I was in room number 15 at the Princess Margaret Hospital. So I was always in the same room with the same um, radiologist. And every single day, the bright, light, wonderful attitudes of these people. Hi, Marilyn, how are you doing? Yeah. What music would you like to listen to while we put you through this radiation piece? And there were so many patients that were sitting around that were negative and sad and down in the dumps and obviously in pain, but yet the clinicians, the radiologists, the people in the hospital, every day they brought their best game. And I was so impressed with that. Yeah. I mean, I see that, you know, where, where I work, Marilyn, I mean, that's incredible and, and, and wonderful for you for surviving and for learning from the process. But, um, you know, at St. Paul's where I work, we deal with a hugely disenfranchised, fragile population mm. with lots of substance use, lots of homelessness. And, and some are wonderful people who've just fallen off their way. And some still might be okay people, but, you know, they, sh they certainly aren't always um, respectful and, and can be very, very hostile and difficult with the staff and stuff. And, and the nurses I work with day in, day out, the compassion I see, you know, when they're being told to F off and being mm. told, you know, and, and yet they still care and they still um, provide, you know, this, this wonderful care for their patients. It's incredibly, it's much easier for us as docs to come in and come out. We're not stuck with an abusive yeah. patient for four or five hours at a time. Yeah. We might see them for five, 10 minutes. And it's, so it's it really, you know, I, I do see that, um, that professionalism, that incredible uh, dedication and it's, it's, it's impossible not to admire. Before we leave the field of medicine for a second, I understand that one of your last books, The Last High, was based on what you see every single day, especially in the Van in downtown Vancouver with the opioid crisis, and that that was, again, another very timely book. I haven't read that one yet, but that's on my list next. Um, that's got to be something hard for you to see, especially when you're when you're seeing patients coming back like yeah. yeah he was here last week or he was here two days ago yeah i mean the opioid crisis has been so devastating i mean i, I think it's another form of pandemic it's certainly mm -hmm. it's certainly killed far more people in my city even this year than than covid did and at an age of you know half the age of the average covid victim i mean we've lost so many professionally i've lived this crisis for the last 20 years, especially the last five years, we've lost so many of our regular patients. Fortunately, it hasn't touched me personally yet, but yeah, yeah but the, this book was an incredibly personal book for me to write. I was very much, I have daughters, like my daughters are 20 and 23. And, you know, I wanted to get that message to them and their generation of the threat of what opioids are, that it can happen to anybody. And that one time might be the only time 
you know, that I really meant it as a scared straight book for mm -hmm. people who haven't, it's not fair to people who already are opioid dependent, but those who haven't yet <laughs> crossed that threshold into it, just how dangerous it is and what a terrible, terrible addiction because it's, you know, like any addiction, it's chronic, but unlike any other addiction, every time you do it, you're at risk of dying. You know, that's yeah. not true of alcoholism or cocaine or gambling or any other addiction. So right. um, it was a really important story for me. Now, on a lighter note, I thought it was going to be the most topical book in the world when it came out last year, except uh, just a month or two before something called COVID came along. So <laughs> people weren't as focused on the open, which is unfortunate because it's it got worse during COVID. Well, and as you just said, it got worse during COVID. And there's another statistic that is like we lost more people to opioid overdose than we did to COVID, which I don't think the, the, the big world out there knows. That's not true of the world at large, but it's it's true of Vancouver. But but everywhere, the opioid crisis has gotten worse because people are more likely to be, a, you know, with the opioids, when you're alone and using is when you're at the highest risk of dying. Yeah. And COVID yeah. has caused a lot of social isolation. It's also interrupted the destabilized a very unstable drug supply and made it that much higher risk. But yeah, yeah. so. So, Dr. Kelly, what's your process for for let's talk about, I know we are probably not allowed to, but if we talk about your next book, you talk about, I'm writing a book a year. So here's this lost immunity beauty that's coming out on May the 4th. What's next in the hopper? And how, how do you get there? Do you take a beautiful run along the sea wall? Do you, I, I, I how yeah. does it, how does it bubble up for you? <laughs> yeah, no, exercise helps for sure. I mean, it, it's great that, as I said, I have my my think tank at Simon and Schuster that I can bounce ideas off and, and we can kind of come up with, you know, a general theme. And then it's sort of up to me to generate the story idea behind it, obviously. But that's very helpful just because I never had that before in the same way with previous publishers. So that's a big start. But then, um, yeah, just, you know, this next book, for instance, uh, we were talking and it was in the middle of the COVID pandemic already. And we were talking about how, you know, virtual medicine is so huge now. People are seeing their doctors virtually. And and so why not write a book that had to do with virtual medicine? If we're talking about virtual medicine, why not make it a remote community? So we hit on the most northern town in all of the Western Hemisphere, Utkwiavik, Alaska, which is an incredible little town where it snows in the summer and it has its own incredible culture and population and it's only accessible by air. And then if we're talking about virtual medicine, well, what kind of medicine? So then it we decided it was going to, I decided it was going to be about psychiatry. And the, mm. the suicide rate in Northern Alaska is six or 10 times the rate of other places, partly because of the remoteness, partly there's a huge indigenous population there, lots of issues up there. And so suddenly it became a book about, you know, an anti, a new antidepressant and, and a run of suicides that may in fact not be suicide. And it's, it's very much a dark psychological thriller with a couple of huge twists in this story um, that I'm, quite proud of but but it but that was the sort of process piece by piece that it sort of fell into you know um you know this story set in this very uh, exotic remote town and about within medical issue around suicide and antidepressants but it's it's far less medical than most books i've written and um yeah it was just so from the idea of talking about virtual medicine to end up in northern alaska uh that's how the process flowed, but I'm I'm really grateful. I'm really proud of this one. I, I, from a writer's point of view, I, I think it's one of the the 
best books I've ever written. And is it done? I mean, are, are is your part finished and now it's over oh, to the gods who, who do yeah. what they do or just edit it? I mean, yeah. your your creation process of the book is, is done. Now it's edit, 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 maybe? Yeah, I don't think people realize how far the publication of a book lags behind. Like, you know, there's this whole first draft process and then there's an editorial process and then there's a publication schedule, which is... So, you know, I'm relatively fast in the sense of my books, my last few books have been finished and hit the shelves just over a year after I finished the first draft. Often it can be two, three years. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so I've turned the, we're up to about the third draft. There's probably another draft for me to go through, but now we're working on, we just agreed on the title. So I can announce the title. It's called The Silent Light because it's set in the summer in Alaska where it doesn't, the sun doesn't Get set dark. there. It's it's light 24-7. But it has that lovely double entendre around silent night. Yeah. But it's the silent light. Oh. So, yeah. Do you like it? I love it. It gave me chills when you <laughs> said it because there were so many... You know, I'm thinking northern lights, I'm thinking northern, I'm thinking, yes, it doesn't get dark in the summer. And then is it the help that these folks need from a, you know, psychiatric perspective that becomes the light? I mean, I had it going in a million different directions in a, in a second. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's meaningful. But now the publisher is scrambling. They think it's vitally important to find the perfect cover to convey the mood and the setting. And so that'll be a process for months where they'll send me a few ideas and you know, and and we'll go back and forth, and and eventually settle on, on on a cover for this book. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a process, and it's a fun one too. You know, at this point, and then it must be. And how how do they? Can I ask for just a second about the cover art? Like, how do they do that? Do they go out to a bunch of graphic designers and say? hey, read a little bit of it or read all of it. Don't tell anybody what it's about, <laughs> but you got to come back with something that's going to be really inspiring, that's going to make it fly. I mean, maybe for the huge name authors, they do that. But all big publishers have their own in, in-house art director okay. and art cover. And, and primarily what they do is they don't get the art directors to read the books. They come up with the theme they want to capture. Because the cover is oh, never okay. supposed to tell the story. So they might say, we'd really like to see, you know, a view of this town. We'd like some lighting mm-hmm. effect on it. We'd like some loneliness or gloominess or whatever you want to capture, you know. And then, or they'll just give a very brief summary of the novel. And then sometimes the art directors just take it in really interesting ways. So, but sometimes they're very prescriptive with exactly what, at least uh, I can only speak for my own books, what they're looking for in the cover. But it's great because my, you know, the president himself gets involved and my editor and everybody in between the marketing and the salespeople, they all, because the cover is, as I said, if you're not JK Rowling or somebody that's instantly recognizable, cover is essential in the success of a, mm. of a book. So they put a lot of effort into it. And do you have the final say? As the creator. I mean, that's an awful lot of people in the room with a creative opinion about which one might be best or sell the most. What, I mean, is it collaborative? Uh, Well, there's no other way to say this, but no, I do not have the final say. (laughs) They're always so respectful about seeking my opinion. But generally, you know, if I'm not satisfied my experience is they work on just convincing me why it's good not so much as <laughs> no we're going to talk to you till you have our opinion yes <laughs> but for good reason they're the ones who sell the books right they know a lot better what's going to fly in a bookstore they talk to the people that matter so 
even though authors are so passionate about having their view of what their covers should look like, what do I know about, about you know, graphic design or cover art? So I, I, I truly respect, and they're very kind to include me as much as they do, but no, I don't have the final veto. <laughs> Good to know. First, first heard here. So, Dr. Caleb, as we... To a couple more, one more question around your family, and that is, have have the history that you started, you have told me a couple stories about with your, your grandfather and your father, have you ever thought about writing a book that might talk about their survival through the Holocaust or anything to do with that? That's a great question. I mean, one of the books I'm book series I'm most proud of is the the series called The Far Side of the Sky. It's the only historical novels I've written, and it was three novels set in Shanghai during World War II. And it tells the story of German Jews, the very true story of the 20,000 German Jews who escaped to Shanghai right at the beginning of the war and survived under harrowing circumstances in in an insanely cosmopolitan, crazy world where the entire world of politics and culture existed in one city um, of Shanghai. But that was very much my homage to the survival uh, during World War II. And even though I had no family members who went through that route, it's interesting. My dad died just shortly after I completed the first manuscript, and he read it. And he was always a tough critic. And so he said, this was by far my favorite of the books. But he goes, but if I wasn't a doctor or I wasn't Jewish, I don't know if I'd be interested in this. But um, <laughs> but uh, I think he was, pr- he was proud of that manuscript. And and then when my cousin read it, which was shortly after my dad died, he said, that's great that you wrote about your dad. And I said, I didn't write about my dad. And he said, no, no, you did. He said, well, what was the name of the doctor, the, the German-Austrian doctor who escaped to Shanghai? And I said, it was Franz. And he said, yeah. And my dad's name was Frank. I'd never thought about that. And he said, and what did this mm. doctor do? And he said, well, he was a surgeon. And I said, well, what did your dad do? <laughs> he was a surgeon. And what was his personality like? And he was this fiercely fiercely obstinate but principled, you know, man who had cut off his nose to spite his face to, to stand mm-hmm. on principle. And, and that, mm-hmm. that was very much my dad. I, and I did never occurred to me until after the fact mm-hmm. that I was creating a character that would, was like a young version of my dad. So um, it's a very meaningful trilogy and, and, and uh, something I'm very proud of having written. Good for you. And subconsciously, perhaps that was bubbling up, but you weren't aware of it, that that it was happening. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Last question. Mm -hmm. How how shall we wrap this up? What message would you like to, to give the world out there about your book? Here's the shameless promotion opportunity. Um, or just give the world in general, if it's on the subject of of vaccines. And how can we support you? Because you're so brave and everybody you work with, as you've described, is running towards the burning building as opposed to running away from the burning building. So I guess that's three questions. How can we support you? Let's promote this book that's amazing, Lost Immunity. And what message would you like to give to our listeners? Thank you. Well, I, first of all, I hope you'll give Lost Immunity a chance. I really think, you know, it's a pretty good thriller. As, as you said, I think everybody I know who's read it, who's at least willing to tell me their opinion of it, said that it's a, a page turner and they had difficulty putting it down and, and they wanted to get to the end and, and figure out what's going on. But more importantly for me, there's a huge message in this book that, that vaccines are safe and necessary and that if we turn our backs on them, we do it at our own risk, not only to our own selves, but to our whole community around us. And 
And I think as a as a as a group, if if people are out there and and they know people are on the fence about the COVID vaccine, if they know that, you know, I'd encourage everybody to do everything they can to convince their friends and loved ones that it's it's something they have to do for themselves in the community. It's safe, um, and it works, and it's a modern miracle. And if you don't do it, uh, you're not only risk your own lives, but but other people's lives too. The raincoat versus the tent over the community. Absolutely. I have enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Kala. And thank you for your brilliant work in authoring this latest book, Lost Immunity. And I hope when the next one comes out, The Silent Light, that maybe you can come back and we can talk about that one. For sure. I'd love to. I really enjoyed this. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.